Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning and welcome again to Christ Church. My name is Michael and I am honored to be part of this church and part of the teaching team. And I'm going to be talking to us today from Luke chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles and you want to go ahead and open them up there, that would be great. Uh, We may look at a couple of other passages here and there, but for the most part, we're going to camp out. We're going to hide out right there in Luke chapter 11. And as you turn there and as we prepare our minds for the kind of things that we're going to be talking about today... I got, a, I got a simple question for you. I promise it's not invasive. We'll do a, a little showing of the hands to indicate whether or not you're a yes or no to this. How many of you guys played the game hide and seek at some point growing up? Yeah? Okay. Pretty near universal. Most of the hands are up and then most of the other people have those kind of faces that say to me, I don't want to raise my hand and I'm not going to no matter what, which is fine. Not offended by that, but we played this game growing up. It's one of the most universally loved games. Like even even in the midst of the technological revolution and all the new things that kids do, most kids still tend to play this game. And not just in America either. It's a game that's played virtually all over the world. It has different names in different places. We call it hide-and-seek, which, you know, we figure is pretty descriptive. Uh, in, in Australia, it's called 44 Homes. In India, there's a game called Dapa. In Italy, there's a similar game called Nascondino. So it goes by different names, but we all play it. It's pretty easy to play the game with kids because, you know, for one thing, to be kind about it, their intelligence is not fully formed. And also, in addition to this, they kind of like don't want to stay hidden. You know what I mean? Like here's some of my favorite pictures of kids playing hide and seek. Y'all have seen these kind of things before. Yeah, I'm going to put this cushion over me and then all will be well, right? Here's another one. Yeah. <laughs> it's not work. It might work for me, you know, turn sideways, be all right, but it's not working for him. This one's adorable. They do this. I can't see you, so you probably can't see me. And this the other one's kind of dark, but it's one of my favorites. See if you can check out. So look over in the corner there. He's in the kitchen cabinet, but he doesn't pull his feet in. He just lets his feet sit outside the cabinet. So kids play this game, and it's fairly easy to play with them because they want to be found. Apparently, we grow out of that part of the game. Maybe. And up until recently, I just kind of assumed that for the most part, we all grow out of this game, like, entirely. You know, as we grow up, we tend not to say, hey, let's play hide-and-seek when we hang out together. And we play with kids still, but it's not like a high-demand activity at our men's and women's retreats, you know. So my assumption is we've all moved on. But actually, I found out this last week, I was wrong. The Nascondino World Championship takes place in Italy every year, and it is an international adult competition of hide-and-seek. I'm not making this up. So this last year, it was last month, it was in September, there were 70 teams from over 11 countries, and they play on this huge playground that has all sorts of both natural and man-made hideouts. So I I wonder if there's some of this going on in uh, in this particular event. Yeah, (laughs) just throw a box over me and I'll try to hide. So some people still play this game. So while some people apparently never go out of the game hide-and-seek, we all develop the ability to hide. Not so much hiding our bodies, but hiding the condition of our souls, if we're being honest. We develop the capacity to hide some of what's going on inside here, some of what's happening in my mind and in my heart uh, beyond what people can normally see. This happens fairly young, too. I uh, have a senior course on the book of Romans that I teach at the college, and one of the assignments that I've been doing now for the last couple times is they have to write a letter to themselves that is to their own self as a freshman in high school. 
So these are seniors, 21, 22, 23 years old, kind of around that range, and they're writing a letter to their 13, 14, 15-year-old self. And it's really interesting, and of course I'm not going to share any details because these things are private, but I will share that there's this consistent theme I've seen each time I've done this. And it surprised me at first, but it doesn't surprise me anymore. Like there are so, I haven't counted them up, but I would think, I think I'd probably venture to guess at least half, if not much more, of the students say to their younger self, stop hiding. They'll say things like, I, I know all of the secrets that you're keeping for everyone, and I know what's going to happen with those over the next few years. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you now, if you'll stop hiding now, it will be better for you in the long run. Come out of hiding. Even at that age, they're still young, and yet they're looking at themselves being still younger and saying, come out of hiding. So why do we hide? Why do we pretend? I don't know that I have a well-worked-out theory on such things, and the good news is that the point of this sermon is not so much to try and figure out why we hide. The point, though, is to say that Jesus won't let us hide forever because we can't hide from him. Can try, but it's just it's not going to work. Our attempts to pretend to be better than we are work no better than a little girl putting a blanket over her face in the game hide and seek. I want to give you the big idea today up front because the text that we're looking at is kind of pretty large. There's a lot going on in there. So the main idea I think is fairly simple. Jesus won't let you pretend to be righteous. Not forever. He won't let you pretend to be a person who has things together, who is religiously all good. He'll call you out of hiding. He'll say, come out, come out wherever you are. Jesus won't let us pretend to be righteous forever. That's, I think, the key truth that we're going to see in the text we're looking at today. Look down at Luke chapter 11. I'm going to read starting in verse 33 uh, on through the end of the chapter, verse 54. Like I said, it's a decent size portion of scripture, so kind of lock in and, and, and look at the words and listen as we read along. I'll tell you, the, there's two basic parts to it. The first part is Jesus is going to give a teaching, an analogy that has to do with light and lamps and different things, and then we're going to read into a conversation that he has uh, with the Pharisees. So here's the text, Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 33. Jesus is speaking here at the beginning. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Verse 37, next scene. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you're like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. 
So you testified that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I'll send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. I read this text and I say, whoa. There's two difficulties in particular in hearing this text today, hearing it well. One of them is that Jesus is saying some really specific things to a specific group of people a long time ago. Some of what Jesus says here is very much connected to the situation of he and his audience in the first century. He's making some points to a particular group of Jewish leaders called Pharisees, who, to to put it briefly, were attempting to follow the letter of the law perfectly and even go beyond it where they could. And they were doing this so that God would look down and see them and be pleased and liberate them from oppression. And they were so focused on following all of the laws and oral traditions that they couldn't even see the solution standing right there in their midst. They wanted to pretend to be righteous and to present themselves as righteous, so much so that they were blind to the righteous one walking around right in front of them. And Jesus goes off on them for some very specific habits that they were doing in this century. And he tells them that God is going to judge you. That's what woe means. It's a threat of judgment. God is going to judge you this generation. And that's what God did in 70 AD when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, took it over, which is all, you know, riveting for those of you who love history, (laughs) but but not so much for most of us because this isn't our world. So I suppose what we could do is we could spend the morning understanding the Pharisees in their first century world and kind of looking at all of what they did wrong, and then we would all feel a whole lot better about ourselves for not being like them. But I think it would be pretty ironic to read this particular text and to study it, and to focus our attention on the sins of other people. And even apart from this, if this is God's word, and we believe that it is, that surely there is a message in it for us here today. Which brings us to the second problem. This is a little bit harsher than we tend to prefer. We don't necessarily love this side of Jesus. Like, we love nice Jesus. You know what I'm saying? We love friendly Jesus. We love this Jesus, who's like, hey, everybody, I'm chilling, telling some jokes. Got some jokes for you. You're good. I'm good. We're good. Like we love the Jesus who just looks at us with a big old smile. And that's kind of the end of it. And I suppose actually in keeping with the theme of being honest, we like mean Jesus as long as he's being mean to the people that we want to be mean to. We like the Jesus who's ready to judge as long as he's judging the people that we want to judge. I'll be honest, it pains me to think about the fact that I'd probably get more vocal amens if I made a certain statement about our president that you agree with, whichever type of statement it was. Or I'd probably get more verbal amens, more verbal feedback, if I made a certain statement about whether people should or shouldn't bend their knee at a football game. Like, whichever side you're on, if I said what you agree with, and I said it passionately enough, you'd be all about that. We love when Jesus agrees with our causes. And I want to be careful. I'm not saying like, you guys do this. I'm saying we all do this. I love when Jesus agrees with my causes. I love when Jesus dislikes the people and ideas that I dislike. You know what I mean? Like, we like that a lot. I don't so much like the angry gaze of Jesus when it's directed at what I see when I look in a mirror. And I would imagine you probably don't either. 
But I certainly don't want to waste our time this morning, even more so. I don't want Jesus to be mad at me because I softened what he said in this text. So we're going to assume we're supposed to read this story in a way that is at least a little bit uncomfortable for every single one of us, me included. What we see in this text is a unique warning to the first century generation. They were in danger of missing the light that was right in front of them. No doubt, they were. Same danger is true in ours. Jesus comes to each age in plenty enough light to be seen, but not everyone sees him. Why? Because we don't necessarily like the demands that he places on our lives. We don't necessarily like the fact that he says, you're going to have to rethink everything with me at the center. So let's caution ourselves against assuming that Jesus' words here apply only to someone else. Let's assume he's talking to me. And with that in mind, let's take a closer look. He starts with this metaphor of the light and the lamp. And I know some of the details seem a little bit strange and confusing. Mainly it's because they thought about light and the eyeball in ways that are a little bit different than us. But you can get the main idea. It's pretty simple. Jesus is saying that he is the light that exposes what typically hides in darkness. He's the light. It's like when Jesus comes, it's like turning on the lights, at which point everybody can see unless you keep your eyes closed. He's the light that has come to shine light into the world, and those whose light is ready to, those whose eyes are ready to see them are going to experience that night. And since it's a sense in which what he's saying is the sooner you let Jesus, the sooner you let me expose the darkness within you, the sooner I can turn it into light. That's, I think, what he's saying. The problem, of course, is that some people would prefer to stay in darkness. Some people would prefer to hide from the light. And I'd imagine there's any number of ways to break down what we see when we look at the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And we're just going to look at a couple themes in here, one main one, and then a second one that I think we would not do well to leave out. First thing I think we see, I'm going to put it like this. Some people, some people, hide behind selective obedience. I don't even know if that's the best way to say it, but I think it gets the point across. I think you understand what I'm saying. Some people hide behind selective obedience. We can point to certain parts of our lives that are good, and we point to those, like we hide behind those portions that are good, all the, all the portions that are not good. I only want you to see me from one angle, so I'm going to go ahead and keep the other angles hidden. I'm only going to let a part of myself be exposed because it's a part I don't mind coming out into the open. But like truth is, I'm pointing out that to hide the rest. Let's just walk through the story and see what Jesus himself says. Verse 37 says, When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So Jesus went in and reclined at the table. Now, it was common in the ancient world for a dinner party to turn into a time of moral instruction, especially if you invite, like, a teacher into your home. And in literature, it's kind of a type scene. It's kind of like in some of our movies and shows and sitcoms. If, if, like, if people walk into a bar, you know that either somebody's about to hit on somebody or somebody's about to open up about what's going on in their lives. Like in our TV shows, that's just sort of what those scenes mean. Similarly, in the ancient world, if a teacher is invited into a home, it's going to be a time when some lessons are being taught. And right about the time we realize there's a lesson about to happen, we learn that it's not going to be a calm one. Look at what happens next. Verse 38 says, But the Pharisee was surprised... When he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Jesus doesn't play by the rules. Now normally in their world, a guest will respect the host by keeping the host's customs. Sort of like in our world. If any of y'all got a grandma who's really passionate or a mother who's really passionate about not putting your elbows on the table when you're eating food. When you go into her house, you keep your elbows off the table. Or if you go into a culture where, you know, you take your shoes off when you walk in the front door, most people are going to say, oh, like that, okay, that's, what, that's how it works here. Um, take them off. Be considerate. That, that's how things are supposed to work. Their world, too, if not more so. And in this case, Jesus is invited into the home of a Pharisee. 
a man for whom it is very important that you ritually clean your hands before you eat. Not because of germs, but because of holiness. It's very important that you make sure that you are ritually clean all the time so that there's no contamination and God's presence is welcome into your home. This Pharisee cared a lot about such things. Jesus knew it and he skipped it anyway. The Pharisee is shocked, as we would probably expect, and then Jesus goes after him. Verse 39, then the Lord said to him, now then, and whenever Jesus says now then, it's like, oh, Jesus, did you want to say something? (laughs) You know, kind of setting us up for this. Now then, he says, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside also make the inside? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Jesus says, your little cleaning ritual is dumb. You're pretending to be righteous. You don't actually want God to have control of the details in your lives. You just want to give God the things that don't cost you anything. And he fleshes this out with this inside-outside metaphor. We've all seen a dish that looked like it was clean on the outside, but then you look on the inside and there's like coffee mildew in there. That's nasty. It is not clean. It is nasty. It is gross. It is dirty. That's what Jesus is saying. One of the more... One of the more entertaining things about working with college students is that about the time the young men are like juniors and seniors, a lot of times they'll move off campus and they'll get an apartment together and they'll come to us and they're like, man, we're having some conflict. We've got to help, help us work some stuff out. Okay, what's wrong? He is not cleaning the dishes. <laughs> and the other one's like, I'm cleaning the dishes. And he's like, no, you're not. You just wipe the outside, but the inside's still funky. And I'm thinking, do y'all understand how much you sound like your mothers right now? <laughs> like this is payback for what you did to them. I am not going to fix this. I'm just going to let you sit in this right now and think about all the times when you didn't clean the dishes and your mama told you to. But this happens, and that's what Jesus is talking about. He says what sometimes happens at the sink also happens at the church, also happens at work, happens in life, happens all around us. And the problem is that sometimes, sometimes we use our clean hands to hide our dirty heart. Jesus says this phrase that is translated in my text, be generous to the poor. Generosity of the poor is critically important. I think Jesus talks about it in the next couple of verses when he says justice. But this line literally means give for alms those things that are on the inside. And I think that the point Jesus is making here is is more so like like let God have the inside parts of you. Give, Give him as an offering every part of you. And it's not that Jesus is saying, I just want what's inside. I don't care about what you do. No, he cares about what you do. He cares about all of it. He wants the whole thing. He wants you to give him his heart so that your life is given to him as well. And the point is that people with a surrendered heart don't major in the minors. And that's what he says when he continues, verse 42. says, woe to you Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. See, the Old Testament law uh, prescribed, it had demands that said that you are to tithe off of your food. Give 10% of your food for the sake of those who don't have their own food like that. Give it to God as a gift. And the Pharisees are like, hey, we're going to go above and beyond. The law doesn't say anything about spices, but we tithe off our spices too, okay? We're going to take the general rule and then just one-up it a bit. They're trying to be perfect. And they would be impressive to any sort of outside observer. We would look at this and we would say, you are clearly devout. How can you not be impressed by these people? And Jesus would look at us and say, I am not impressed by these people. I have a little bit of a different read on the situation. And he would look at them and say, this is cool and all. But you know, like the purpose of those tithing laws are to take care of the poor. They're for justice. How about the fact that you don't care about them? Do you you really think God is fooled by this? 
And he doesn't let up either. It's almost like that would be enough. But then he says, Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you because you're like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. He says you want people to think well of you, but the reality is you're leading them in the wrong direction. You want people to see you as somebody who draws other people closer to God, but in reality you're like an unmarked grave that accidentally contaminates people. You're just walking around spreading the stench of death. Wow. Do we do this? Do we pretend to be righteous more than we are? Do we hide? Do we major in the minors just to look good on the outside? I mean, I know some of us do because I, because I have children. I asked them if I could share this story the other day, talking to our kids and Claire and Carson, seven and four, four and seven, and they're fighting. They're just, you know, back and forth, bickering, bickering, bickering. And at some point, I was like, babes. And they look over, and I'm like, okay, let me just ask you all a question. What is the best way for you to avoid fighting? And Claire, my seven-year-old, she's pretty smart. She's like, don't talk to each other. <laughs> I said, that is true, but that is not what I'm going for. And then Carson's like, I got this. So he's like, be nice to each other. And I'm like, yes, man, like that's the right answer. And then he looks at Claire and he's like, ha, ha, I'm right. And I'm like, no, man, <laughs> come on. Like you're, you're wrong now. Like you were right, but you're even wronger than before, you know. It's ridiculous. And is it possible that we don't, don't grow out of this? Is it possible that this little dinner conversation was a microcosm of what we still do? Do we hide behind outward observance to try getting the right answers behind religious pretense? Yes. Do you personally? I don't know. But you might not know either. Remember, it is unwise to assume that Jesus is only talking to somebody else. Don't assume he isn't addressing you. Some of you in the room think that because you go through the religious rituals, the disobedience in your life is not that big of a deal. You think that because you go to church or sing the songs or read your Bible more than all your friends that Jesus doesn't actually care about the sin that no one knows about. I think we do this more than we care to admit, and I think we even do this more than we realize. We use our service to God to cover up the sins that we'd rather not release. Well, I serve on the communion team or as a student sponsor or a greeter or I'm the preacher or whatever. Great, wonderful. God calls you to serve him and to serve the church in ways that are appropriate to your gifts and the season of life that you're in. But he commands you to love your wife all the time. He commands you to respect your husband all the time. He commands you to work hard all the time and rest when appropriate. He commands you to to raise up your children to follow Jesus all the time. He commands us to pursue justice and walk humbly and use our words to build people up rather than tear them down. And he calls us to do this all the time. And he's not looking at us going, I'm so impressed with your religious observance when we're not actually following his commands. He will not let you, he will not let me pretend forever. Like we might look good to each other. But he knows the truth. And so here's the uncomfortable question of the day. What are you hiding? Like, what is it for you? Now, I don't know what the poison is for you, but you need to ask yourself the question. Because what good is it if the only time you're kind to your wife is when you're greeting people together as they walk into church? How is God honored if the only time you speak respectfully to your husband is when you're around somebody else who you actually do respect? Well, who are you fooling if you make sure that everybody at work knows that you're a Christian, but then you spend your late nights looking at images flashing across the screen while everybody else is sleeping? Or do you think that God is up in heaven going, well, you hit the bottle hard a couple times this week. You and I know about it. Nobody else does. But hey, at the end of the day, you also wrote a couple checks to charity, so we're good. Like, do you think that God is going, nah, like, listen, I know, like, you and I both know you've been ignoring for weeks my, my urges to go and talk to this person about me. I know you've been ignoring me when I've been telling you to go tell them about me and just start a conversation. You haven't done it. We know this. But I guess, hey, on Friday, the automatic withdrawal is going to come out for your tithe. So we'll call it even. 
Do we really think that God thinks like this? I don't, I don't think we do, but sometimes we live like we do. And again, I don't know what the poison is for you, but maybe it's this. What good is your hashtag activism if you won't actually let your life be interrupted by real flesh and blood people who need more than dollars and tweets? Or this is... <laughs> do, we not, do we not remember, have we not read in the Proverbs that our that we make God's ears bleed when we come here in this place and we sing songs to praise his name, but we walk out of this place and gossip and slander the people who are created in his image that we work with and live next to, sometimes live in, the own ho- live in our own homes. I just, I, I don't know what it is for you. What are you hiding though? Is it, is it lying? Do you just not tell the truth? Is it pride? Is it adultery? Is it, is it greed? We could go on, though I'd rather not. I hate doing this. I don't like this part of the job. And I am not trying to heap shame on those of you who are fighting your sin with everything in you. I'm not even talking to you right now. So if this is you and you're fighting, good job. Keep fighting. Don't be discouraged. Keep moving forward. But some of us aren't fighting at all. We've either either given up or we've not even tried. And it's not some sort of a call to be perfect. It's a call to get in the game because we got work to do. And I'm not talking about we got to work our way up to God's favor. No, we've been given grace long before we did anything to earn it. We will never earn it. We've been given love. We've been given the gospel. We've been given favor by God. And we've been given power to overcome the junk in our lives. And all God is doing is saying, I made everything available to you. Are you going to step in and do this or are you not? Because at some point, at some point, We're going to have to have something to say to Jesus when he looks us in the face and says, no more hiding. And I'm just asking y'all to believe the witness of the scriptures where God reveals that Jesus will not let us pretend forever. I I hope you can hear my heart on this. Eventually the lights are going to turn on. Hebrews 4 says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If that was a little wordy for you, Jesus says it simpler in Matthew 12, 36, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. And in another context, same truth, Romans 2.16, Paul says, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. I know full well I'm not talking to most of you in the room, and I'm very glad about that, but I am talking to some of you. You think you have the room fooled, and maybe you do, but you're not fooling Jesus. And I need to be very clear on one point. Jesus is not all of a sudden not being kind or loving. It's not like he stepped out of the mode where he does what is best for us and is now just being mean. That is not what's going on here. The only reason he speaks this directly to us is for our good. It's like a surgeon. Would it be kind and loving for a surgeon to say, yeah, it's a tumor and yeah, it's malignant, but I really don't want to mess up your skin, you know? Or I just, I mean, I don't want, I don't know if I want to do anything because the recovery process is going to be painful. No, like that's not loving. And Jesus says, listen, it's going to hurt, and then it's going to hurt a little more, and then it's going to be a lot better if you just come out into the light. Life is better here. Just come out into the light. I know it's hard at first, but then it's better here. And if something uncomfortable is stirring in you this morning, good. Repent. Come clean and turn it around. It's not too late. So repent. Come clean and turn it around today. And I'm not talking about, yeah, I'm going to handle this one on my own. No, you won't. No offense, but no, you won't. 
Because you didn't the last time or the time before that or the time before that, so expose your sin. Get it out into the open. Tell somebody. I know it's going to be painful. I've had my moments of such things in my life, and I hate them just as much as you do. But do we really think this is better? Jesus will not let us pretend to be righteous. He calls us out of hiding. That's true as we say all he asks for is your heart, but we make that sound way softer than it is. He wants everything. He wants you to trust his voice so much that when he tells you to do something, you don't think about the consequences right now. You think about the fact that he's the one telling you to do it, and you do it. Stop hiding behind selective obedience. I wish this was the end of the conversation, but it's not. Surprise, surprise, when Jesus said all this, somebody didn't like it very much. Somebody was offended. Teachers of the law are like, well, oh, Jesus, you offend us so when you say such things. We've got one more point. It's not as long, but I think we do need to say it. Number two, some people hide behind other people's failures. One of the experts in the law answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, oh, sorry, my bad. Totally didn't mean to do that. Actually, he said, you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. Experts in the law, we read this, we think, yeah, this is for the Bible teachers and it is, I should hear this text. This text should make me uncomfortable. But I also want to point out that you should share in that uncomfort, that discomfort, because this text is written to people who know God's moral standards, who know what God says about right from wrong. And that's most of us in here. And so we should probably all be a little bit uncomfortable about the fact that what Jesus seems to say here is that knowing moral truth does not automatically make us more faithful. Knowing right from wrong does not automatically make us righteous. It's not what you know is true, it's what you do with that truth that reveals the true condition of your heart. And the ability to identify right and wrong in the lives of other people is not a mark of closeness to Jesus. I don't know if I should go here, but I guess why not? Sometimes people come to us as preachers and they'll say, man, you know what you need to do? Y'all do a fine job, but you really need to go after this sin. We really need to make sure publicly that we clarify for everyone that this is wrong. And sometimes I just want to say, why? So you can feel better about yourself because you don't commit the sins of the really bad people? Like next time you come with a suggestion about which sins we should go after, make it your own sins. How about instead of just always pointing the finger, we ask Jesus, why don't you expose what's going on in my life? And how about instead of being so interested in making sure that people understand that what we, they're doing we think is wrong, that we make ourselves available to walk them through these things. That's what Jesus seems to be saying here to me. Now, I want to be clear. There you go. It's true. Yeah. I do want to be clear. Jesus is not talking about relaxing our moral standards. They're not our standards. They're God's, and he's not in the business of changing such things. So that's not the point here. But the point means we, first of all, apply those standards to ourselves. It may be pretty easy for you to say to, if you got a gay friend or a lesbian friend, hey, listen, God's calling you to celibacy. That's just his call on your life. Okay, true enough and fair enough, too, if you're ready to draw the line that tightly on yourself. Or maybe you have a friend who's a racist and you want to say to them, listen, this attitude is just inappropriate for a follower of Jesus. Yep, it totally is, and you should say that. And you should also then look in the mirror and say, what attitudes am I manifesting that are totally inappropriate for a follower of Jesus? And I'm not saying that the awareness of these things changes the fact that we sometimes call each other on our junk. It just changes the tone of voice with which we do it. And it means that we suffer alongside those who are hurting. Woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Last week in the Mark in the text that Mark covered just before this one, he, he talked about how Jesus told a bunch of um, 
a bunch of devout Israelites how some idol-loving Gentiles are going to hear and repent long before. He told them about how some of these outsiders, these people you think are so unrighteous, are actually going to get into the kingdom faster than y'all because your hearts are hard and you're trying to pretend to be righteous. So let me put it like this. Jesus is much more willing to work with a bunch of LGBT folks who are genuinely repentant. Jesus is much more willing to work with a bunch of racists who are ready to change the way they think than he is a bunch of religious pretenders who hide behind masks and aren't interested in letting him into the details of our lives. If you want to experience the life that Jesus promises to bring, you got to let him shine the light on the dark corners of your heart. What if we did this? What if we did this? I know it would hurt. And it would be messy, and I'm not even trying to suggest that Jesus is going to make it not messy. But I do believe that a power would be unleashed in our lives, our families, our church, our community, and we have no idea where it would go. And if you find yourself bothered by what Jesus says here, don't be surprised when you also find yourself living out the last few words of this text. Don't be surprised when you, too, start opposing him fiercely and besieging him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. I want to be practical with, practical with y'all, but I don't really know what else to say, so I'll just put it like this. There will come a time when Jesus will look us each in the face and say, ready or not, here I come. I would advise not waiting until that moment to step out of darkness and come into the light. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.